0: I'm Timothy Neal,
1: and I'm Cami O'Dalley,
0: and you're listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology,
1: a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology.
0: We're brought to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. This month, we are thrilled to share a wonderful conversation between David and Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, the brilliant Anna Singh. Over the course of the last 20 years, Anna has given the social sciences a whole host of tools for tackling global questions in situated ways and vice versa. Her most recent book, The Mushroom at the End of the World on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins, cultivates an arts of noticing but to be in the world is to be in relation to many things, large and small, beyond purely human realms. It feels as though further introductions are both unnecessary and would inevitably fall short of giving justice to Anna's singular contribution to the discipline. So please, enjoy this conversation with Anna Singh on working for things you believe in, the frictions between immersive and multi-sided research, how to tell terrible stories beautifully, and the promise of an anthropology of the Anthropocene.
2: Thanks for being here and uh, welcome to Conversations in Anthropology. It's a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: We always start off with a bit of an icebreaker um, to sort of ask about what brought you into the discipline, what your pathway was. What made you an anthropologist?
1: I went to college without having ever heard of the discipline of anthropology and was signed up for it by a freshman advisor who didn't think that girls should study science, which is what I thought I wanted to study. Oh, no. So he signed me up for introduction to philosophy, literature, and anthropology. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and luckily, I had a amazing anthropology mm. class with Sidney Mintz. Um, oh, wow, really? And he explained that anthropology was the study of politically unimportant people. And for some reason, that really caught my attention. Mm. and. I thought that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, uh, the U.S. was still involved in Indochina, and uh, he talked about the war from the perspective of Indochinese peasants as an example of what it meant to be the study of politically unimportant people. It was moving, passionate, and made me think that this was really important.
2: Would that have been a sort of political... Uh, awakening moment as well, or were you already...
1: I was already doing a lot of politics mm-hmm. at that point. In fact, uh, when I had to fill out some bureaucratic form as a freshman about what my career plans were, just to be bad, I wrote that I wanted to be either a revolutionary or a farmer. Two things that were completely unsupported, <laughs> of course, in college education.
2: <laughs> Do you feel like anthropology... It's From you know the work that you've done, it feels like in some way... You are indeed an anthrop- revolutionary in a farmer. Or oh, would that be yes, fair to say? I,
1: well, indeed, I realized that the only course I've ever had on farming I had as an undergraduate when I had the luck to have a course with Harold Conklin, who taught a course on agriculture in which he brought in, you know, it had nothing to do with organic farming or commercial <laughs> farming, it was shifting cultivation in mm-hmm. the Philippines, and he brought in all these tubers and different plants and vegetables that you could plant and gave Mm. us diagrams about how to plant them. It was an utterly practical (laughs) course that meant, indeed, Mm -hmm. that I've always been fascinated by shifting cultivation and the actual mechanics of Mm -hmm. how to do it. And as for the revolutionary part, uh, by the time I went to graduate school, I perhaps wrongly thought that if you wanted to understand imperialism, patriarchy, and the kinds of inequalities that ruled the world, you ought to study something like anthropology. So at that point, I thought it was going to be a political education, and it has been in some ways, but of course not in all the ways that at that point I imagined it
2: could be. Mm. What sort of political education was anthropology then? Or, Or wasn't it? Yes,
1: I think I remember when I read Eric Wolf's book, Europe and the People Without History, I thought this is part of the education I came for, to understand how all these different places in the world were wrapped into the expansion of Europe, the invention of race and racism, the spread of capitalism and things like that. So that's what I was hoping for. And I'll admit, even though I had been to college, I did not come from a strong intellectual background in the humanities or social sciences. So when in my first year of graduate school, we had to read a lot of dead people who lived a very long time ago and seemed to me quite wrong in Mm. what they were saying. I was extremely confused about why I was doing this (laughs) and what the point was. So it took me a long time to figure out the kinds of intellectual conversations that constituted anthropology, because at that point, Mm. I thought more of very practical things that were going to help me be an activist uh, Mm -hmm. that didn't turn out to be what I learned in graduate school at all. But I also, in the end, felt like I found something that I'm never going to get tired of. I think there's one piece that might be useful to add, that all my friends who work in politically active NGOs would love the chance to go to graduate school to slow down for a couple of years and take Mm -hmm. the problems that they're working on every day in Mm -hmm. a hands-on way Mm -hmm. and be able to think about them more clearly and read about them. And they feel so overwhelmed by the need to do everything so quickly Mm -hmm. that there's some advantages, too, to graduate school within a life that's also about mobilizing people and trying to work for things that you believe in
2: Mm. i've always been interested in you know what pathways people take aside from phd to the tenure track have you watched your sort of friends and colleagues filter into ngos after graduate school yes uh so it seems like your work you know especially friction came about at a moment when the scope and the boundaries of anthropology were shifting and in some ways reaching more to the scale that Eric Wolf was talking about. Mm -hmm. So I guess the first question I'd wanted to ask was what made you interested in thinking in that scope?
1: I think it started with my first field work which was about a particular place in Indonesia and at that time anthropology was still studying places as if they were self-contained and you could learn everything about them through their internal structure and contradictions. Mm -hmm. I found that I couldn't do that, that I was working in a place in Indonesia where people were quite isolated, but self-consciously marginal rather than autonomous, that they saw themselves as part of political and cultural currents that were coming from other places, even though they were just the kind of social group. That anthropologists in the past had imagined as an autonomous group. So, that first project that I did that became in the realm of the Diamond Queen was my attempt to uh, show how the most out of the way places were also part of much larger currents. By the time I wrote Friction, anthropology had changed a whole lot to accept the idea Mm -hmm. that perhaps the places imagined as so isolated were not so isolated. In fact, We had gone somewhat in a different direction. Just at that time, many scholars were so impressed by the wave of something that was being called globalization that they imagined that all places were being swept up into the same set of global currents. Mm -hmm. And there, I wanted to do, in some sense, the converse sort of work, to Mm -hmm. look at some of the global interconnections and show how they were rooted in things that were happening in particular places in ways that were often quite parochial, even if they weren't recognized as parochial by the people who were involved in them. Mm -hmm. So I had been studying, for example, the uh, timber trade, which was very much a multinational globe-crossing trade. But it seemed to me to understand what was going on. You really had to see how particular places and their dynamics made it happen that everything that we saw as global is always rooted.
2: When I started graduate school, uh, Uh it was 2004, and I think Friction had just come out. And I was really excited about doing global ethnography. And I had sites in mind in three or four different countries which is what I ended up writing about mm. and at the very beginning I got quite a bit of pushback you know from people who are still imagining ethnography as having to take place in a spot on a site or at least you know if it was multi-sided it had to take place in several sites but there had to be a, right. a there there I'd like to ask you how you think about designing a field project that's that Global and whether it's possible for someone who's just starting out, or whether you need to start from a very locally rooted uh, experience and then build up.
1: One of the things I think about that is not so much an intellectual mandate, but something about how people's lives are organized. That if a scholar is ever going to do locally situated, immersive fieldwork, that is fieldwork where you get tons of excessive stuff that has nothing to do with your project, but has the ability to reshape the project because you're learning things that you didn't set out. If you're ever going to do that, it's going to be when you're in graduate school. Mm. Because the rest of your life, there are so many masters telling you what to do that you're in a rush. So very few people get the kind of freedom and open-ended opportunity Mm. that you get to do your dissertation research. I spent two years on my dissertation research, and I'm so happy that I did it all in one place, all Mm. in one tiny place, uh, learning things that were far beyond what I thought I was doing there. So I imagine it as an opportunity. Indeed, I'm trying to go back to something like that. I want to start a new project in Indonesia, and... I'm trying to revisit some of the place based pleasures. I mean, not placed in the sense that you're caught in a cage, because this could have to do with circuits of livelihood, circuits of travel, but something that we're getting to know what's going on in a place matters to understand something as big, say, as the Anthropocene. But at this point in my life, I'm going to have to make many many short visits. Mm. And the the thing that's going for me at this point in my life is that no one has a gun to my head that I have to publish it right away. Mm. But the bad thing is, you know, for me to get a year off to just do this and nothing else is pretty much impossible. Mm. So I know that's not exactly how you wanted me to answer, but I do encourage my students to try and get the chance to do some kind of immersive local work because mm. It's life-changing, in my opinion, and so it can be conceptualized in terms of many globally, planetary Mm -hmm. kinds of issues, but uh, it's a real privilege, and that's not true even in all countries, but, say, American graduate students Mm -hmm. still get to do a year of field work, Mm -hmm. and I've been doing some work in Denmark where not all students feel that they can do that. And I'm really sorry. I think that that opportunity to do something that really immerses you is is exciting, Mm -hmm. and it's the only time you're ever going to get to do it.
2: Mm -hmm. What sort of advice do you give to graduate students who are coming in uh, with global eyes right now? Uh,
1: I think... Well, partly because of how I think about the global, that the global is always rooted in particular processes, that getting involved in some of those processes matter. That when I started the uh, fieldwork for Mushroom at the End of the World, I originally wanted to study a global commodity chain, but I always knew that the way to study a global commodity chain would to be to get at some disjuncture in it and be able to look at that node really carefully, that rather than just say, looking at economic reports from around the world, Mm -hmm. I wanted to get in close to some piece of the Mm -hmm. commodity chain. So that would be the advice I would give to, that's not like you should shun global questions, but that you should figure out traction for those questions Mm -hmm. in relation to something that's small enough that you can get a handle on it Mm. and learn more. The Mm. the learning more thing seems to me so important. that It's the best part of anthropology to me Mm -hmm. is that we get away with telling our students that they have to write a really good grant proposal or research proposal, but then they're supposed to go out in the field and throw it away (laughs) when they figure out that it's wrong. That's the best thing about our field. Mm. I know there's some fields right now that are trying to institute rules that you're not allowed in your doctoral research to do anything other than test the hypotheses that your committee, this Great. is not in anthropology, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. in other social sciences, mm. that the committee has approved a set of questions and you can't go outside of those questions. Like That is the worst kind of scholarship. <laughs> it seems to me that the kind that I feel that I grew so much from and am still delighted by in anthropology is where you stumble on things mm-hmm. that show you that your initial questions were not good enough. Mm-hmm. And then we're allowed to change them. And the only way to do that is to get immersed in a certain set of social relations. Mm-hmm. Um, that don't all have to be in the same place, but that I have to give you the opportunity to Well, to figure out where your questions weren't good enough, that Mm. part. And so I really don't like projects that go out to take, for example, a famous theory of something and show it in a particular Mm. place. That's not helpful to me, that the whole point is to learn from what's going on in a place or a set of processes Mm. or Mm -hmm. something like that.
2: Because I know people think about ethnography differently in different fields. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in ways that don't show up until you're working with someone, it's always felt really important to me that anthropology is something that changes us. Mm -hmm. You know, the anthropological fieldwork makes you a field note.
1: Right, right.
2: In The Mushroom at the End of the World, you write about the importance of the art of noticing. And I wanted to ask a little bit about where that comes from for you and how the art of noticing plays out in your fieldwork.
1: It's both a theoretical concept and a fieldwork concept, because I don't think anyone is capable of noticing everything. Mm -hmm. So the theoretical importance of it is in relation to those narratives of progress that have been getting in our way and allowing us to ignore everything that doesn't seem to be in the particular lens that is called the future. Mm -hmm. And so we block out everything else. So art of noticing At its most basic is the ability to get beyond that that lens that didn't allow us to see so much of what's going on. So I can't say that then you see everything. Obviously you don't. Mm -hmm. So in field work, I had the pleasure of hanging out with people who loved mushrooms. People ranging from mushroom pickers, scientists uh commercial people so the incredible love that they had for mushrooms guided me that they showed me how to love mushrooms and mushrooms work as a kind of metaphor for some of the noticing that we don't normally do because they're only there seasonally and you have to notice more than the mushrooms. It's not like a row crop where you plant it and then the time comes along and you hope that it's there. Mm. You have to go to a lot of places and if the season's been right, which you don't know, they might come up and they might not. You have to see the places and get to know those places so that you can revisit them. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a whole, there's smell and color and texture and all kinds of things other than just vision involved so in lots of ways mushrooms can stand in for the many things that we're not paying attention to but I wouldn't want to pretend that as a result I can see everything because I (laughs) certainly can't.
2: Do you feel like the mushrooms have changed you in, in the way that field work makes you into a new person? Are you becoming mushroom?
1: When I started the project as I just admitted I was interested in commodity chains, and it took me a very short time to learn to love the mushroom for itself and the way it lived in the forest and the arts of searching for those mushrooms, which are really hard. And in fact, my own difficulties finding them made me appreciate them even more and think it was magical when people I was with were able to see a tiny crack in the ground and realize that several inches down, there might be a mushroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... Uh, It changed me right away, and that the whole part of the book that's about how mushrooms live and how people appreciate them, that came out of the research itself. So I learned a lot from that research.
2: And it's such a hopeful book, or well, it gave me hope.
1: Yeah, I worry about the fact that people see it as a transcendent hope. I knew that when people started talking to me about the book. For me, it's complicated. I mean, it's it's hopeful in that it's not all about death and doom. But in a way, it's terrifying to live in a world where we don't know where we're going. I find that more hopeful than thinking we're just... Walking off a cliff, maybe, but not as hopeful, in fact, as the progressive vision, which was mm-hmm. that by fighting for justice, we knew where we were going. Mm-hmm. You know, that was hopeful. But this is a kind of navigation of the challenges and opportunities around us. So it's hopeful and not hopeful. I mean, I wish I could say something better than allies will turn up around us. I wish I could say, as progressive movements have done for hundreds of years, these are our allies. Mm -hmm. Get to know them. Learn how to work with them. But to have to say, okay, we don't know who our allies are, and we're going to have to figure that out as we're going along. That's quite frightening, even though there's pleasures along that journey, too.
2: I often think of Rebecca Solnit defines hope in this really sort of ateleological way as not optimism, hope is uncertainty plus possibility. Uh,
1: Yes, uh, that's good, I like that. But when everybody started telling me that the book was about hope, I started to worry about anthropology, that Mm. we had gotten addicted to a certain kind of hope, Mm. and that I was part of the problem, that we wanted in every challenge the people will be successful. Uh, Whatever local people we've gotten to know, we want them to win the battle in the end through their creativity, through their ability to survive. That's the stories anthropologists wanted to tell, and I was Mm -hmm. part of it. And as I continue to read about the challenges around us, I've decided that's not enough. We're also going to have to learn how to tell stories where we're not winning where there's just really terrible things happening and we might not win. And I know anthropologists have been very critical of those kinds of stories, particularly as paralyzing, as leaving one deadened. Well, then it's going to be a challenge. How do we write those stories in a way that they're not paralyzing, that Mm -hmm. they bring us to life, that we notice the details, all that art of noticing is in there, that we stay with the trouble, as Donna Haraway puts it, that we get involved. Uh, So that's our challenge, that rather than saying, don't do it, I think the challenge of our time is, how do we tell terrible stories beautifully?
2: That puts a smile on my face. I often am struggling to hold both of those feelings in the same space.
1: So the point of Feral Atlas, the whole project is, how do we tell terrible stories beautifully? Mm. Feral Atlas is an interdisciplinary project. The anthropologists, of whom there are many involved, were particularly hard to convince to tell terrible stories beautifully. Uh, So we have some very positive, optimistic stories in Feral Atlas. We have not banned them at all. But part of my insight there is that anthropologists' thinking that we had better politics than natural scientists, Mm -hmm. had disregarded the warning stories that natural scientists have been trying to tell us. We've disregarded them. We've said they're not good enough. But in fact, perhaps those stories are radical stories, stories that we need to be listening to and that we need to tell in a way that's better than we have and that we can be working to make those stories more persuasive and convincing, rather than blocking people from telling stories about the terrible stuff that's around us. So that's what we're trying to do.
2: So what are some of the terrible stories?
1: In Feral Atlas? Mm-hmm. By Feral, we are looking at uh, non-humans that get involved with imperial and industrial infrastructures, transform themselves in some way, and go off doing things that are completely outside of human control. So that's our definition of feral. Mm -hmm. But it includes living things and non-living things. It includes toxins and radioactivity. It includes carbon dioxide. Those are some of the non-living things. But it also includes diseases, pests, plants and animals that are destroying native ecologies. So it's the whole set a phenomenon that we Q taken together, give us the Anthropocene.
2: Within that, how do you think about justice?
1: I think part of the reason we needed terms like rights and justice is because we saw our job as imagining non-humans as parallel to humans. But at this point... They're not parallel. We're so interdependent. We are completely incapable of living without bacteria to digest our food, plants to create oxygen. All of the living world around us is so intertwined with our lives that perhaps a framework for living together could be based on that interdependency rather than on parallels Mm -hmm. in which animals and plants have to be seen as equivalents of humans.
2: Where do you turn to think about multi-species entanglements that are not informed by justice or the legal frameworks? Well, let me go
1: back to justice first, because I do think if there's one incredibly urgent task, it's to bring the kinds of thinking about social justice and about the environment together. a year and a half ago now, at the American Anthropological Association meetings in San Jose, almost every session I went to, someone jumped up and acted like it was common sense, that it was impossible to do environmental work and social justice work together. And this was very frightening to me as a kind of flawed common sense. And so the work that needs to be done to make it really clear that these are kinds of work that need to be done together, that we can't do racial justice, for example, without paying attention to disease environments, toxins, all of the environmental justice questions that have been brought up for many years now, and vice versa, that we can't start talking about multi-species analysis without thinking about the forms of settler colonialism or of capitalist development in which multi-species worlds are so vulnerable. So it seems to me absolutely urgent to bring these kinds of thinking together, even though there's still a lot of work to do Mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. just the best ways to do that.
2: Got good friends working on the intersection between racial justice and animal justice and they do use the terms justice around prison environments where you know there are you know animals who are being exploited and people who are being exploited in racialized ways and writing about people who've been dehumanized in the same breath as writing about animals who are being exploited can be a really difficult
1: yes no really difficult. But mm -hmm. again part of the problem is that parallel rather than the interdependence. Because it seems to me that you know you can't talk about prison without talking about the question of diseases in prisons, for example, or the lack of access to plants, which I think is very unhealthy for most people. I mean, even if we talked about food, this is a multi-species problem. So my instinct, at least, is to bring racial justice issues and multi-species issues, rather than seeing them as parallel layers as common problems in which they can't be done without each other. I mean, I, I think one of the big debates in anthropology right now is whether we can talk about species in terms of invasion. And a lot of anthropologists think not. Well, I think all of the species of which I'm aware that have been called invasive are parts of projects of human conquest that Mm -hmm. the way that they become invasive is because they form a part of a human project of conquest. So I find the term invasive in those uh, ways completely useful, Mm -hmm. that the grasses in California, for example, that have completely obliterated California native grasses in certain kinds of places were brought with the conquest of California. And that's just uh, one example. I mean, Mm -hmm. in in fact, an ongoing one in Latin America where grasses are brought in for cattle and those have displaced tropical forests where indigenous people continue to live. And so you see that displacement of both human communities and plant and animal communities working together, Mm -hmm. not as parallels, Mm -hmm. but as part of the same project of conquest. Right. Let me say one thing, because in your questions you sent me, you were asking about an anthropology of the Anthropocene. And I think it could be a very exciting time for an anthropology of the Anthropocene, despite the fact that there's so much bad news that would have to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. That most prominently, studies of the Anthropocene have been based on planetary modeling of various sorts, like climate change modeling what anthropologists can bring is an understanding of what's going on in particular places and in relation to what we've been just talking about, the questions of imperialism, of capitalism, of racial injustice that are the characteristics of these places in which Anthropocene phenomena are occurring. Mm. That this is a job for anthropologists to describe that What I think of as patchy anthropocene, that is one Mm -hmm. created of ecological patches from brownfield toxin areas of industrial waste to plantations Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, coffee or whatever uh, that are still very much part of our world. Mm -hmm. So this is a great job for us as anthropologists, in my opinion. It used to be that anthropologists saw their job as criticizing the concept of the Anthropocene, but I think now it's become a forum for interdisciplinary conversation and that we should make use of that Mm. to do some of the things that we're really good at, which are knowing about particular ways that social dynamics are working and that we can do that to do better descriptions of the Anthropocene.
2: I also was interested in the the interdisciplinary, or maybe it's even transdisciplinary, the kinds of conversations that this work comes out of you uh, and the sort of the milieu at UC Santa Cruz. Is there anything that you feel like saying about the way the, the interdisciplinary nature of those conversations has shaped your research?
1: I think Santa Cruz has been a really fertile place for me develop intellectually and I'll just talk about the latest incarnation of what we have going which is colleague and I have started a small Center for Southeast Asian coastal interactions Mm -hmm. and we're trying to think about lively coasts and Mm -hmm. in the largest sense of the term of coasts meaning things that could come from the highest mountains to the middle of the sea but involve lively geologies in which humans and living things are as much a part of them as rocks and water. Mm. And next month, we're going to have a seminar, for example, on harmful algal blooms by an ocean scientist who's worked in the Philippines. And she is bringing with it a kind of legacy of Southeast Asian science, as well as international science, to understand this phenomenon, which is a something that happens when humans put too many nutrients into the water, and then all these uh, dinoflagellates start going crazy, Mm -hmm. and it kills off a lot of fish. And only by working with ocean sciences and social sciences, perhaps, are we going to be able to understand phenomena like that. So I'm very excited by the work that we're doing. And we have some little research projects, too. One is called Marine Hitchhikers, a PhD student named Joe Klein is studying the coral trade that comes out of Indonesia. And biologist named Peter Funk is working with him on the sponges that ride along in the coral and only come out in Aquaria, you know, often in the Global North, but in other parts of the world. So again, a topic that takes the kinds of skills, the ethnographic skills, and the interpretive skills that anthropologists have, as well as the familiarity with sponges and corals that only biologists have trained very well in. Mm.
2: I can imagine that being a story that's easy to tell, as beautiful, as well as uh, having a sort of terrifying component too. I'd love to ask you about your writing, because you clearly are someone who cares about the craft. I remember reading The Mushroom at the End of the World and being jealous, because it's so clearly a book that has been written carefully and lovingly.
1: Well, I think writing beautifully is important and that we should all try our best to do that. I think for most of the history of the social sciences, people are taught to not write beautifully, in fact, to write badly. And I remember a colleague who said to me, oh, I used to write like you until I went to graduate school and they beat it out of me. And I think that's true, that we teach people to write badly. I remember, it's a long time ago now, but I doubt if it's much better, an article in which they had studied how many readers there are for the average journal article, and the answer was five. And it's partly our fault that we are not learning to write as well as we can. So I'm also for classes that teach all of us, because I I would like to learn, too, about how to be public intellectuals, how to write in bigger kinds of contexts, in the kinds of ways. I mean, I think Europeans do this much more than Americans, and I don't know about Australians, but American anthropologists almost never get out of the academy. And there was a time that I think... We got defensive and proud about that, and then so wrote more and more obscurely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think some of the language experiments that happened, particularly at the end of the 20th century, were really important and interesting And learning to move away from common sense meanings of terms and to stretch language to do interesting things. So that stuff was really important. But there's also no reason to just get into a little terrarium and talk to each other. (laughs)
2: I love the metaphor of the the anthropological terrarium. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any advice for people who are, especially early career researchers, who are looking for their voice um, and maybe getting some of the pushback when they're too writerly...
1: I have some graduate students who are pushing me. Mm. One even came in on the visiting day, you know, trying to decide if she was going to attend Santa Cruz. And she said, I'm not coming to this program unless you let me use my creative writing voice. I want to hear the faculty swear that this can be part of the program. So (laughs) I think there's a lot of assertiveness going on that's going to expand Mm. what anthropologists can do. I think there was a time back in the very early 20th century when anthropologists wrote poetry and uh, short stories and stuff like that and maybe we'll come back into a period when writing might be part of our craft as anthropologists.
2: That's probably a good moment to end on. Okay. Although it is an optimistic note.
1: Yes, no, no, that's fine. I don't mind optimism. I'm not requiring that we're miserable all the time and (laughs) even with Feral Atlas, it is my goal that, you know, there's part of it's like a game, Mm -hmm. a treasure hunt and I want people to have fun on Feral Atlas, even though the stories are pretty much doom and gloom stories. Mm. So I want people to enjoy them in the extent that it makes them want to learn more. It makes them want to follow up on these kinds of clues, to see things around them that they hadn't noticed before. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for talking to me. You've been
2: listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. A podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mythley Maher, and Matt Barlow, and it's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, you can find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. Um, and if you feel like it, you can rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platform.